This is a sick setup, bro. I uh, I twitch. Oh, you do? Yeah, I got a buddy of mine who uh, is a big nerd, and he's got like I got like four screens and two different monitors. I mean, it's crazy. That's the voice of military veteran Omar Crispy Avila, and I'm Chris Weidman. This is Won't Back Down, presented by BioAccelerator. On today's episode, we have Omar Crispy Avila, the military veteran, a war hero, a guy who was blown up by an IED in 2007. And after he was blown up, he was shooting back at the enemy uh, while he was on fire. He broke both his femurs. Um, he's had over 100 surgeries. And while going through those, those surgeries, in between them, he became a record holder in powerlifting. He is just an incredible human being. Now he's a motivational speaker, and you're going to see why in a little bit. But before we begin, let me tell you about our presenting sponsor, BioAccelerator. BioAccelerator is the world leader in stem cell therapy and regenerative medical research. Through the use of their powerful golden stem cells, they help patients heal from joint and orthopedic injuries, autoimmune disorders, spine and disc damage, and neurological trauma. I'm going to be heading out there in the next couple of months to like inject my shin and my neck and some different injuries I've had over the years and, and take that to a different level. And uh, our buddy Crispy, who I just spoke to, he's heading out there in a couple of weeks uh, as well. So they're doing great things out at BioAccelerator in Colombia. So make sure to check them out. All right. Here's my conversation with Crispy Avila. Yeah. So Omar, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, the second episode of my Won't Back Down podcast. Um, so we kind of have a mutual friend with Michael from uh, BioAccelerator. He had uh, mentioned your name to me and I just, you know, I Googled your name and right away these videos came up and I was driving and I'm watching it and I'm like, your story is literally the most inspirational story I've ever, ever heard. Um, but the way you handled the whole situation and from the onset of your injury um, in that moment, how you dealt with it is literally like just a complete hero. And um, I just was like, you know what? I need to have this guy in my podcast. I need him to tell this story because it's really the craziest story I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> but before I have you just tell that story, because we will get to it, I want to just kind of get to know you and like where you're from and, and how you eventually got into the military. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. This is awesome. And um, I just want to start off by saying I'm, I'm not, I'm no hero, but I know a few. Um, and yeah, um, man, the military, uh, it, it was my father served. He was um, a tanker during the, um, the Gulf War. Unfortunately, well, I say unfortunately, he didn't get to go. Um, he, uh, his unit was ready <laughs> to go and then the war ended. So he didn't get a chance to, uh, to go. And I, I grew up seeing the pictures in the house of him in uniform and in basic training and stuff. So that was always there. Um, so I think that played a, a big, big role in uh, me joining, especially when 9-11 happened. I was a sophomore in high school. And I don't, I, mean, I don't think I've said this in many podcasts before, but I was originally born in Mexico. And we came to the U.S. when I was about seven, eight years old. Um, and I became a citizen two weeks before 9-11 happened. 
Jeez. Um, so it was it was a definitely a um a, a motivation because I just be, I just became a citizen and I have two younger siblings, and me being the oldest, I knew that I had to go fight. I, I had to do something. And I feel like that was my calling. You know, a lot of people say that us uh, service members sign a blank check to this country. I feel like it was the opposite way. I feel like this country had given me the opportunity to become anything that I wanted to become. And I wasn't going to let those freedoms go away. So I decided to go fight for my for my siblings um, so they can grow up and, you know, become whatever they wanted to become. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's how I became about joining the service. Where, where did the love of this country like come from? Um, like at what point was it just when you became a citizen or was it like, you know, throughout your whole life? Um, it was throughout my whole life. Um, I think people take a lot for granted in this country sometimes, um, like the little things um, that, you know, like going to school, um, getting a meal at school, um, you know, being able to go to the grocery store, not having, you know, the, the, the actual like, crime in the streets that you witness every day, things like that. Um, so I, I grew up loving it. I fell in love with playing football, basketball. Like those were um, the things that I really enjoyed. And so I, I grew up really, really loving it. And I think the pride came as soon as I got that piece of paper. Because um, I've always felt like, you know, when we came to this country, I feel like I was an American. But when I got that, that, uh, that paper in my hands and I knew that it was, it was a 100% thing. I was a U.S. citizen. It was just one of the proudest days of my life. Yeah, that is, a, that's amazing, man. True American dream. Yeah. Um, so 9-11 happens. I mean, everybody was just angry and all torn up. And I think we're right around the same age. I'm 37, just 35, turned 37, yeah. 35, around the same age. Um, so you know, it, it really amped up everybody. Everybody wanted to go to war, no matter who you were, who you are. But it ended up like a lot of people just ended up not doing it. People got focused on their own lives and they're just, you know. Yeah, I was a sophomore in high school. Not I would have gone. Um, but it was always in the back of my head. Right. It was one of those things that I made a promise that I was going to go and I wanted to go. And um, yeah, just like you said, you know, you start focusing back on live things, start going back to the regular and. You know, you, 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 I don't want to say you tend to forget, but you know that there's people already out there fighting and Absolutely. it was out of my hands. You know, I mean, I was 16 years old. I, I, I couldn't go. Um, and this is not like World War II where you had 13, 14 year olds signing up and going to war, lying about their ages. You know, we, we were in a, uh, in a time where, you know, information is relatively, available to us so you know there's no way about lying uh and joining the service um so it was always there in the back of my head i um i went about my life played football had a couple of uh collegiate um football uh, offers to go play um but i i literally sat down one night um before graduating and i i made a uh a promise to myself i said i'm gonna go do this i'm gonna go and serve my country. Um, and then I don't know, potentially go back and play football or go back to school or, or I, I, you know, it wasn't a priority at the time. I just wanted to join and, and go fight. And I chose to be an infantryman. Um, there's a, 
there's a lot of jobs out there. Um, I did my research. I saw that there was, you know, um, endless jobs and every single one of those jobs supported the infantry, the special operations, range of battalion, special forces, all that. So I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to make sure that when I join, I'm going to go out the wire and fight these guys head on, not, you know, do another job that may or may not do that. So. Yeah, you're a freaking beast. Um, <laughs> I was I was in New York uh, when 9-11 happened, and I was in, I think, 11th grade. Um, and it was just insane. We could see the smoke from our school. And oh. I just remember the like the chaos and the confusion at first. Like our teachers, you know, there was an announcement. And then uh, the teachers were you know, kind of like trying to explain to us what was going on. And then I remember going to our next class and everyone's like, oh, I bet it was Russia. I bet it was, you know, yeah. Iran. <laughs> like everyone's trying to take a guess. Like, yeah, who did this? Nobody had an idea. And then all of a sudden I started hitting people like, wait, my mom works in the city. Oh, wait, oh. my dad is in the city or my uncle. Like I started hitting people like, wait a second. This is yeah. like real. Because um, when they first hit, you didn't think they were actually going to go down. You know, and it, it just, uh, it's just amazing the impact it had on so many people. Yeah. Um, and I remember like feeling the same way. Like I wanted to, I wanted to go and serve our country and and do what you ended up doing. And, but me like with, with college wrestling and that goal on my mind and just kind of getting back to normal day life, it's just something that I didn't do. And, but it was always in the back of my mind. And that's why I really look up to anybody who joins the military in any capacity, um, because it's such a sacrifice and it's something that I always wanted to do. And I, and I didn't, and, um, I'm not saying I regret it because I feel like, you know, God had a, a different plan for me, but sure. it's just, uh, something that I really, uh, you know, feel inside. Um, so nine 11 happens, you're inspired. You want to, you're going to join the infantry, um, a couple of years go by, obviously until you're allowed to go. Yep. Um, and then like what happens next? Like where, where do you start off at and, uh, how do you get to eventually Iraq? Yeah, so uh, ended up going to Fort Benning, Georgia, which is home of the infantry. Um, did training there. Um, got all wrapped up. And then, you know, at the time, um, the Army pretty much grabs a bunch of people at a time and they start putting in the unit just to make sure that that, that unit is uh, at its capacity to have the service members that they need to deploy um, when they're getting ready to come uh, in the circuit of going to Iraq or Afghanistan. And so my group got orders to go to Europe. And, you know, I was like, oh, man, cool. I'm going to go to a, an airborne unit. And I was like, this is awesome. I ended up in a <laughs> mechanized infantry unit, which is uh, we have what are called Bradleys. They're kind of a smaller tank. It's it's meant to carry about eight people in the back. And you pretty much roll in on those. So I ended up in Schweinfurt, Germany, under the uh, First Infantry Division, uh, 126 Blue Spaders. So got to Germany and... It was one of those men hit the, the round pretty much running. We got there uh, within a couple of weeks. You know, you get issued all your stuff. You make sure you get um, signed in. You do all your medical paperwork, everything. And then I want to say about a month later, we were in the field because we had just gotten orders that we were getting to re that we were going to deploy in June. Um, so, you know, as soon as that starts, you got to go train. Um and make sure that you're very proficient at your job. And not only that, that you're um, that you're comfortable with the people you're serving with, right? That you're going to be able to trust them, that you're going to be able to, um, to perform with these people. And so we went to the field that that, and then the orders finally came and said, you guys are leaving on this day. And um, 
got packed up and headed out to Iraq. But that's that's crazy. Like, so at at some point you meet your team, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, you don't know these guys from any anywhere but now these are the guys that you know that you have to make it work with yeah and then they're and all, all different personalities yeah exactly <laughs> i mean we have people from indiana um georgia i mean and, and it's kind of a you know you're trying to fill everybody out and and it's kind of like you have that pride of your state so you're like you know you start naming off certain things and yeah. um this was around the time where uh vince young was still in, in at ut <laughs> and they were and they were playing USC. I don't even remember that. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of guys from California. And there was a lot of guys from Texas in our in our platoon. So we're we're literally in Germany, like at six in the morning, and we're getting ready to go to work. And we've been up since three, watching the football game in the hallway of the barracks. And you know, you have the Texas guys on one side, the California guys on the other side, and we're like giving each other so much crap. <laughs> And then all the other guys from the other states are like, whatever. But it was that kind of stuff that um, that brought us together um, and really got, I mean, all of us really became a family. I mean, we literally had each other's backs. And um, that was the type of uh, community where, you know, you could have your differences. But at the end of the day, we're all one. We're together. And, and we got to make this wheel turn. And, and it's going to take every single one of us. Uh, to do so. So it was, it was more of a family more than anything, man. I, I trust the, those guys, every single one of them with my life. That's amazing. I love that you guys could just bust each other's balls and beat <laughs> each other up over football. And then like, yeah. that's, that's how the bond happens, which is kind of like the way it works in real life too. You know, yeah, it's well, like sure. just humor and, and BSing with each other just makes, makes it all good. Oh, yeah. um, so then like you're in Germany, where you where, where in Germany were you? Schweinfurt. Schwankford. I've been to Ram- I, I, I did a USO tour, so I actually went to uh, Ramstein, Germany. Oh, cool. I think that's a big, you know, area. That's a big, big Air Force base. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I did go to Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, no big deal. Nice. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just crazy, crazy times. But um, all right, so you go over. They tell you you guys are going to Iraq, and then yeah, you know, take me from there. Yeah, so we get orders um, and we finally get ready to go, and we uh, we head out to um, pretty much. You go to Kuwait first, right? They want you to get acclimated with the weather, pretty much, because it's so freaking hot that mm-hmm. it, it'll shock. If we would have gone in straight into Iraq, I think we would have had more heat casualties than what we actually had. We had a few guys go down. In, in Kuwait, because they didn't take it seriously, you know, like, you're like, yeah, this is not hot. I'm from wherever. Um, we had a guy from Arizona, just stubborn. He's like, this ain't hot. And I'm like, bro, you need to drink water. And uh, he's like, nah, nah, I'm good. And he was out drinking coffee, like, every other hour. And I'm like, dude, you need to take this, like, seriously. And he didn't. And then he went down from, uh, uh, you know, had a heat exhaustion. I mean, he was on the ground. And I was like, holy crap, this is crazy. But that got us acclimated to the weather um, and to the heat. And it was mm. it was a heat like I've never felt before. And this is coming from a Texan where here in Central <laughs> Texas, it gets hot. Yeah, And humidity, too, or just, I know it's no, dry. Just dry. It's, just, it's just, like if somebody grabs a, a, a freaking uh, what's it called? A, a hairdryer and you yeah. put it on your face. That's what it felt like as soon as I stepped into Kuwait. Wow. It was just like four of them in your face. That, that's literally how it feels. <clears throat> so we spend about two weeks there. And while 
we're there, you start doing a training exercise as well um, to kind of simulate you being out in Iraq and in combat and you get used to the heat, and like I said, and, and, and whatnot. And um, while we're doing that, our, our chain of command, our higher chain of command are getting orders on uh, what what specific area we're going to go to, you know, what our missions are going to be um, and how long are we going to be there? And so we finally get orders. We head into Iraq. Um, we ended up in this small town called Adamia. It was the last place that Saddam Hussein had been seen before he went into hiding. Um, and we had literally fought and taken over the palace um, where he was there. And that's that's kind of where we where our um, our deployment started. We moved so in. Were, were you one of the people that actually took it over, or you some our, the military <coughs> took it over, and then you guys came in? Yeah, we, that was the your military smart. took it over. A unit before us took it over. They actually fought in where the guys that killed both of Saddam Hussein's kids um, in a firefight. Wow. And we just kind of, uh, we were put in a situation where they were like, hey, this area hasn't been patrolled and it hasn't been a military presence in about two years. And we've seen a lot of activity come out of there. You guys need to come in and, and see what's going on, gather up intel and pretty much get this back to where it used to be and make sure that there's no um terrorist activities coming out of there so that's that's kind of where we headed to um and it was you know a lot of the guys called it the alamo man because it was literally our cop which is more of a um a lot of guys have a fob which is a forward operating base we were in a cop which is a smaller smaller scale and so it was our house and then in front of us was our combat zone literally we lived amongst the people and this big castle, and all we had Holy to protect smokes. us were like, yeah, all we had were like tea barriers, um, you know, and a guy on a gate and a couple of guys on the rooftops with machine guns to make sure that we wouldn't get overrun. And uh, and that's where we lived, man. That, that was our modern day Alamo. I mean, at what point do you guys realize, like the nerves start setting in and the reality of the situation that you are in, you're not, not a military base in Iraq that is fortified and, you know, and something that is uh, has been there for a while, and you know it's going to be able to protect you, but semi protect you, <laughs> semi protected yeah. bases that even when you're sleeping, you know, uh, it's oh, yeah. it's nerve wracking. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just curious on like the nerves and the anxiety and and like how that works when you're in a, at a place like that. that it does yeah. it settle down or is it just constant? To be honest with you, I think it intensifies the experience because all that we've ever done um, in our military training, in our military career is train, right? Where it's, I mean, I'm going to go on a limb here and say, you know, it's like training camp, right? You're, you're getting ready for a fight, you're training, 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 and then the day comes and then, you know, they announce your name. Here's Chris and yeah. you come out of those flashing lights. It's kind of the same thing. It's you've been training, 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 and you want to put your skills to the test Hmm. and you want to see how everything's going to turn out. If you're really ready for this, if you took everything serious and apply everything uh, to any situation that's thrown at you. And that's that's pretty much what it was. We were ready to, you know, we were ready to go out and patrol and find these guys and fight them and, and see how well trained we really are and how ready we were for it. So that that was it was more of an excitement. The nervousness. I think everybody uh, at some point um, pretty much came to a realization is either I'm going to die or I'm going to go home. And that's that's it. There's there's no in between. 
Yeah, and it, it's funny with fighting. There's two sides of the mind. There's the the brave side that's like, I am the best in the world. And I'm gonna go out there and show everybody tonight. All that hard work's gonna pay off. And then there's the other side where you're like, I hope the building blows up before I get there, and there's no <laughs> event. <laughs> there's this crazy catastrophic event that like they just can't put on fights tonight, and uh, yeah. they're gonna have to postpone it to another time. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's crazy when you're, uh, I mean, obviously what I'm doing is just, you know, fighting another person and, you know, the chances of actually dying are very, 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 very low. And, uh, just crazy. The different mindsets. I mean, so there's no way you could be brave the whole entire time. There has to be like moments of like, Holy shit, what am I doing here? Um, I think so, but I think they they were very brief. We didn't really have the time to actually sit down and be like, Okay, let me gather up my thoughts and see if I want to get out of here. There's there's not that option at all. Yeah. Um, but I, I think at some point everybody experienced it. Everybody experienced the uh what the hell are we doing? You know, especially when we started losing guys and and mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you're so used to seeing somebody and then all of a sudden they're gone and, and it's not like they're gonna come back in a few weeks, it's like they're gone forever. Um and then you start wondering, is it my, when's my turn? You know, so it starts playing tricks on you, but you got to shake it off right off the bat. You got to make sure that you, um, it, it's not fair to your, to your teammates of you not being a hundred percent proficient at your job and being a hundred percent there, um, because it could potentially cost their lives or it could cost your lives or multiple lives. So it's not fair to the other guys of you not having your head in the game. Um, so it's it's a quick um, it's a quick brief period where it comes in your head. You think about it, and then you're like, okay, I have my thoughts. I got to shake it off, and I got to get back to work. Um, I'll come back and circle to this later on and see how I feel again. Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense, uh, and that's I guess a big difference between fighting and uh, being in the military is that uh, you you're in a team sport. I mean, obviously, what could happen to you is is uh, obviously the worst, but you don't want to let down your teammates, your family, you know? Um, so that makes sense. All right. So let's go in. Uh, so you, so you're, you're in Iraq, you're at this, mm-hmm. this little base that's uh, kind of protected. <laughs> and so every day, what are you guys doing? And uh, what is your job? <laughs> um, so every day, I mean, there was literally something going on every single day, either with IEDs or, or insurgents coming in and out of, out of, of our place. So, you had Sunnis on one side and you had Shias on the other side. And I don't know if you know this, but they don't like each other. It's like having mm-hmm. Christians and Catholics killing each other. Yeah. And um, so the, the Shias used to come into our area of operations or AO and would kidnap uh, military aged men, grab them, execute them and drop them and leave. And, and that was it. They were just killing each other because of different um, beliefs when it came to religion. It, mm-hmm. it was one of the craziest things. Um, so we were always in the lookout for that and to make sure that that wasn't going on. And we got, you know, we'd be out of patrol and you see a lady coming out screaming and yelling and crying, saying her husband got um, kidnapped. And in some instances, we were able to find those people as they were taken off. We were able to track them down and find them and bring them back home. Um, we mostly did raids um, to make sure that we, we found caches a lot of times where they were storing explosives that they were getting ready to send out throughout the country for uh, make IEDs and stuff like that. Um, we were going after HBTs, which are high value targets at night. 
we do a lot of missions at night, come in and whether they're asleep and, you know, we have the technology to see at night, we come in and hit them with the full power of everything that we had and catch them off guard, um, bring them back. And then, you know, a helicopter comes in, they grab them, they take them and they go interrogate them and get as much information as they can. Um, so that's kind of the stuff that we did. We patrolled the area to make sure that our presence was known and they knew that we were there. So not to try anything and, you know, um, try to establish a good relationship with the people. You know, we uh, there were certain areas that didn't have electricity or they didn't have running water or bathrooms and stuff like that. So we would put out um, big generators to power the community. We would, um, you know, fix some of the issues that they had with water. Sometimes we would do like a medical thing where, you know, the locals can get seen by our doctors to make sure that they were okay um, or if they needed anything. So it was a little bit of everything, man. We, we just wanted to show our presence there and um, find the bad guys, essentially. What was the uh, the Iraqis, Iraqi citizens, uh, like the, the innocent people's reaction to you guys being there? Were they happy you guys were there or were they like, get the hell out of here? It was a hit and miss. Um, a bunch of people were happy that we were there especially when we were able to help them, you know, find one of the loved ones or get them back. Um, some were mad that we were there. Um, and, and there was instances where we were coming to people's houses at night, you know, looking for, for the bad guys. And, you know, the, they've never seen an American and they were excited. They give us tea and, you know, tell us where, where the bad guys are. So it was a kind of hit and miss, man. Like the older, the older, um, gentlemen in the area like the elders didn't really like us being there but the younger generation did um so it was it was a hit and miss gotcha all right so i, I guess we shall uh let's get to your crazy day that obviously changed your life uh, <laughs> forever um unless there's anything else that led up to it that you feel like is important to uh to hit no no i mean i don't know we'll jump right into it it's um Honestly, it's, it's just, you know, it was a consistent thing of going out, fighting all that things. And, and it's just, uh, it was just like any other day, man. We, we woke up super early. Um, you know, I think we were up like at four or five in the morning, um, got our trucks ready. And usually, you know, you're doing eight hour patrol. So you want to make sure you have everything with you. So that's like water, you know, ice and make sure you have, a, you know, your, your tobacco and your coffee and all that stuff and make sure your guns are running and, and that you're 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 ready for the day. So that's that's kind of how I started. Woke up and me being a machine gunner, um, I went and make sure that my gun was ready. Make sure that I had enough ammunition in case something popped off. Um, so going through all these things, and uh, I you know we get ready to roll out and we get debriefed. Like, hey guys, there's been activity of insurgents in this area. Um, more on this than the other, and just keep your eyes open. And for the most part, man, a lot of these guys didn't like fighting in the morning, to be honest with you. They were, they're kind of, <laughs> these guys kind of get rolling around noon and it's, it's about 7.15, 7.30 in the morning. And uh, we're in a five vehicle convoy. I'm the third vehicle um, in the pack. And as soon as we roll out, you know, everybody's still kind of trying to wake up, trying to get their head in the game and an IED goes off. And it actually hit the last vehicle, um, but it was a small IED. Um, and it, all it did was blew the spare tire on the vehicle. So, you know, we all jump off. We uh, And before we jump off, I'm sitting there, and I remember uh, Staff Sergeant Compass, which is my, my squad leader, 
hits me on the leg and he goes, there's your alarm. And I'm like, oh. I'm like yeah, I'm awake now. And everybody in the vehicle is like super, you know, hyper vigilant at the time. Cause we're trying to see um, if they were going to come. Cause for the most part, what they did was they will blow you up and then they rush, you know, and then they, they try to fight you when, when the chaos was going on. Yeah. Fortunately, none, none of that happened because you know, it was a small thing. We were able to assess the situation and keep pushing forward. Um, so we continue to do so. And as we're doing that, you know, we're traveling um, northbound and out of nowhere, man, we start getting shot, uh, shot at from the left hand side because we were going on an intersection and there was just rows of streets that you can turn to the left. So they shoot up the first two vehicles and those vehicles can't turn right away on the road. You know, they already passed it. So we turn on that road. And as soon as we turn, man, I just, you know, you, you see the enemy and I saw him down the road and I'm like, adrenaline just goes from here to way above, you know, over the roof. And, you know, you see the enemy and then I just started laying on them. So I start firing and um, I dropped like two or three of them. You can see them just start falling. And so you're on the, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm you're on the turret. The, yeah. You're on the turret up top. Yeah. How much of you is actually... Uh, out in the open to where they uh, pretty much what you're seeing now, like about here, because you sit in a in a in a turret, so your whole torso, your oh, upper yeah. torso is it's exposed. Um, but we did have like a bulletproof, um, like we pretty much engineered it, and I say we, but our mechanics that we had um, made brackets around us, so some of the Humvees that were blown up or were done, we were taking the windows out of it and putting it around us, so we had you know, a little bit of protection, um, but your front's exposed. I mean, why wouldn't they always just, why wouldn't that just be on there? Why, why isn't that part of the original design? Um, because they, it, it's kind of like anything, right? You adapt and you overcome. It's, it's just kind of like, um, uh, I mean, how do I explain it? For the longest time, right? And, and, and fighting arm bars were the big thing because people didn't know how to protect it. Yeah. And then people were like, oh, I can get out of this this way. So that was kind of what we did uh, in service. It was like we we showed up on the mats, and you're like, "Oh yeah, that that I can block that with this." And here's how I'm going to do it. So once we established that, we put it out to everybody else, and people were were seeing that, and they're like, "Oh, okay, that's how I do that." So then it kind of got implemented into it. Mm. Also, what we did, um, we had one of our guys um, who who was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, jump on a grenade that was dropped from a rooftop into their vehicle and, and he ended up dying because of it. But because of that, we started using HESCO baskets on, on our vehicle. So we put a HESCO basket over the gunner and then we put this mesh stuff that we had and we were dropping center blocks. We were dropping the heaviest things that you can drop on. And when they were hitting, they were bouncing off. So we oh, adapted to that. Yeah, so it was kind of wow. adapting the things as we were going. So that's why they weren't originally um, part of, of everything in the beginning. You know, it's kind of you learn as you're going. Well, yeah, so, well, like this, this is kind of like a war like we've never fought before. No. Right? Yeah. So we, I, I guess that makes sense where you had to learn so much right on the job and then pass it down to everybody else. Yeah. Um, holy smoke. So. Like, yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so back to the story. Yeah, so yeah. we start. I start engaging these guys, and you know, you got my headset on. You can hear it over the radio. The guys are like, "We're back, back in formation, back in formation." So the first two vehicles became third and uh, fourth and fifth, and then my vehicle became the first. Right. <clears throat> so we're doing that, and as we do that, 
you know, we engage those guys, they drop a few, and then all of a sudden they shift. I mean, it was a coordinated attack. They 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 knew what they were doing. So as soon as that happened, you know, we're we're back on the road and we start going, and I see more in front of us. I'm like, there they are. So we start chasing, and as soon as we start going, um, we've been there about 11 months. Like we were getting, we were getting ready to go home. Um, and I knew those, that street, like the back of my head, like I, I knew where we were at. I knew everything about that street. And all of a sudden we went over this bump and I'm like trying to process in my head, like, wait, something's not right here. Wait, that's not supposed to be there. And as I'm telling that to myself, I just hear the biggest explosion I've ever heard in my life. And up to this point, I've been blown up quite a few times. I've been in a couple of ADs, got my head rattled, everything. And this was by far the loudest. The guys behind us said the vehicle went about four to five feet in the air. And you're talking about about a ton vehicle. This is how heavy they are. Um, later on, we found out what they actually did is they dug up uh, into the ground and they placed 200 pounds of explosives. Um, so when we rolled pounds. over. Yeah. What's the usual? Um, you know, you're looking at four or five pounders that are very oh easy God. to hide. Um, this was something new that they were trying um, because they quickly realized that if they fought us head on, they, they weren't they weren't ready for it. I mean, every time we got in a firefight and we faced them face to face, we had zero casualties and they had probably 95 percent casualties. Um, so they, yeah. So that. Yeah. So they realized that they couldn't fight us head on and they had to do the cover thing and it was place IEDs. Um, so they hit our vehicle. It goes up in the air. Um, and we got we got lucky that everybody didn't die because they were supposed to hit it in the middle. As we rolled over it, they were going to detonate it in the middle and that would have killed everybody in the vehicle. Well, it was a command detonation, meaning the guy had the trigger in his hand and was looking out a window. Um <clears throat> And he panicked a little bit and he actually hit it late. And when he hit it late, it hit the back of the vehicle. That's kind of what launched it up. Um, and there was five of us in the vehicle. And when that vehicle went up in the air and it came back down, as soon as the vehicle hit the ground, my legs gave out and I fell all the way into, into the vehicle into the right-hand side. And when I did that, um, specialist Nicholas Harkey uh, from Indiana was there and i fell on his lap and i looked at him to make sure that he was okay i was about to grab him and be like hey, get out get out and i looked into his eyes when they were just white he was he had been killed on impact it was i don't even think he felt it it was done quick and as that's happening i you know i kind of look over to my left and i see the doors open and uh catterton which was one of the drivers and uh fleming uh was a passenger in the back seat I saw them both jump out and I remember it was everything went into slow motion, but it was fast. And I see them running on fire. You know, they're both on fire and they're, they start rolling and then I, I don't see them anymore. And in the front seat was uh, Sergeant Campos who, man, he was uh, one of my best friends, man. Um, we're, uh, we grew, both grew up in South Texas. He was like two towns over from where I grew up. So like, the environment um, that we were both raised in was the same thing. You know, we both came from uh, immigrant families, um, grew up, you know, in the 
poor neighborhood kind of came out of it, did all that. And I remember uh, having a really good connection with him. We were just super close and he grabs me on the leg and he goes, get out, get out. And he himself couldn't get out because the vehicle was in fire and his equipment had burned into the, into the actual seat. So he couldn't move. And I think he had some spinal um, injuries where, you know, I think his legs were, um, I think he was paralyzed and he couldn't get out. <clears throat> so he's telling me to get out, get out. And man, I'll be honest with you at that point, um, you know, you quickly realize you're either going to come home alive or you don't, there's no in between. I never thought you can get injured and you come home and live somewhat of a normal life with injuries. Right. To me, it was cool. All right. Let me, uh, let me make peace with God. Cause at that point I was very mad at God. We weren't in, we, we, I wasn't in a good place. Um, we had lost about 15 buddies so far. And every single time one of them died, I questioned him. I was like, why are you letting this happen? Like what's going on? Um, so I lost a little bit of faith and I remember laying there and I told him, I was like, no, nah, man, I, I'm done. Like, this is it for me. And I remember just laying there and I started making peace with God and I started apologizing and I asked him to, uh, to please take care of my mom. You know, I'm like, take care of my mom. I know she was going to take it the hardest because, you know, uh, a mother's love, you know, it's something that uh, I don't know, but I can only imagine. Um, and so I started thinking of my mom and it's kind of where I was like, man, I, you know, just make sure that she's okay. And please, you know, look after her. Cause this, this, this world is cruel and make sure that she's okay. And I knew my dad was going to be okay. You know, being a former service member, I knew that he, uh, you know, he was going to take it hard, but I, I, I knew that he was going to be able to help my mom get through it. And I just started praying about my brother and my sister and man, out of nowhere, dude, I just, I felt this, this inner light in me, like this, something just sparked in me. And I was like, it just came over me until today. I credit God 100%. And it was the, uh, this is not where you die. Not today. Get up. And I just got that energy. I got up and, as I did so, there was enemies on the rooftop. And I remember getting on my gun and I said, all right, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go fighting. And I just start lighting it up. And as I do that, um, one of the rounds exploded in, in my face because there was the fire was so heavy that it was cooking off the rounds. And I, uh, Wait, I'm sorry. Were you still in the actual truck on that backup on that machine gun? I got back or, on the machine gun. Yeah. And while the whole, your truck is on, it's on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, they uh, they were able to get compos out. One of the guys, um, Taylor, ran up to the truck, opened the door. And as he was running to the door, he got around to the side, um, which was blocked by uh, his armor. But he got compos out <clears throat> as I was giving suppressive fire to the guys on the rooftop. <clears throat> and as that's going on, you know, the round blows up in my head. And at that point, you know, I saw that he was out and I was like, all right, I, I got to get out now. Um, so as a gunner, you're taught to get out of the turret, get on top of it, jump on top of the engine and then down, you know, cause it's about six feet high. Well, I got up there and I was like, Oh, dang, I, I can't. And I have my M4 in my hand. I was like, I, I can't do this. Like if I jump on the engine, uh, I'm going to die. Cause it was on fire. So I was just going to go straight with it. So your second option is to jump in the uh, trunk and then down but both sides were on fire. So at that point, I'm like, all right, I'm going to jump to the side. And it, it was, it, it sounds like I had a lot of time, but it was, it was quick. Everything I'm saying was super quick. 
Um, so I jumped to the side and when I jumped down, I was on fire. <clears throat> and so I jump and instantly break both my femurs. I mean, they just pop to the side and I remember being on fire and I'm like, Oh shit. So I do the whole stop, drop and roll. You know, I, mean, I already dropped. I start doing <laughs> the, the roll. And let me just tell you that does not work. <laughs> oh shoot. Not with these. I was ready. Are you serious? I was <laughs> yeah, ready to rely on that. It does not work, man. It does not work. Uh, but luckily for me, we had a, um, uh, we had one of the guys run from the last vehicle with a fire extinguisher. And he said, close your eyes. And I go, why? And then he just hits me and puts me out. And he's like, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get a medic. And I'm like, okay, go, go, go. As that's going on, I remember hearing two helicopters above me. And I'm like, holy crap. This is the fastest medical evacuation I have ever witnessed. You know, I thought we were getting pulled out. What had happened was there was two Blackhawks in our area that were flying uh, back home where they were from and from the mission. And they saw the smoke coming out. So they came to check it out and they saw that we were on the ground. So they established communications with the guys on the ground, tell them what was going on. And as that's going on, I just hear, I mean, I just feel bullets everywhere falling on me like brass. And, you know, I look up and it was the, the helicopters were shooting. Well, there was about 45 insurgents coming our way with everything you can think of, RPGs, RPKs, AKs, everything. And these helicopters were at the right place at the right time and took them all out. Like, wow. Took them all out, which saved our lives because with all that chaos and whatnot, I don't know what would have happened. So they take all these guys out. I'm laying there. And as I'm laying there, I remember I was like, man, I got to get away from the vehicle because I was so close. I could still feel it. <clears throat> So I pushed myself back. There was a door behind me and I turn around and I take three shots at the door just to make sure that no one was coming from there. As I have my back to it, I see a little bit of movement on the rooftop. So I start shooting and I finally run out of ammo. So I'm there, you know, I just put the gun next to me. I'm like, all right, this is it. And as I'm laying there, uh, one of our guys is running by, which is uh, uh, Sergeant Nunez goes by me and he looks down and he like looks me up and down and he's like, are you alive? And I just remember looking up and I'm like, I think so. And he goes, oh, shit, let me get you up. Let me get you up. And I was like, I think my legs are broken. So he takes a quick look at me and he goes, no, 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 you're fine. And I'm like, cool. So he stands me up and I put all my weight on him. I mean, like every single bit of weight on him. And we start walking towards the vehicle. I mean, walking, he was probably dragging me because um, my legs weren't all there. And as we're doing that, um, we get to the vehicle and he's like, all right, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to have to let you go a little bit, you know, just stand there. Let me open the door. And as he lets go of me and he opens the door, all that pressure came back on my legs and my legs just rebroke. And I just remember seeing him, seeing the Humvee. I hit the ground. I'm looking up and I'm seeing the sky like I just collapsed again. And he comes over me and he's like, oh, my God, are you OK? Are you OK? And I was like, I told you my legs were broken. And he's just. He's blown away because like, I, I, up to this point, I can't feel any pain. My adrenaline is so high that is blocking out the pain. Like I had no idea that they were that severe, that I had that much of, of you know, I didn't know my femurs were both broken. Um, and so he puts me in the vehicle and he's like, all right, let me go get a medic. I'm going to go get a medic. I'm like, okay, okay. So I'm sitting there and the driver was a brand new guy. Like I told you earlier, we had lost so many guys 
that he was a new guy that came in and never been out. Um, this was his first time out on sector and this is what's going on. And he was freaking out a little bit, you know, like, I can't blame the guy. It's first day outside and you see this. Um, so I reached over and I do just kind of like what everybody would have done. I smacked him in the face and I said, shut up. <laughs> I don't know if everybody would have done that. Bro, you just got burned up, blown up, and bullets are flying by. You broke both your legs, and I'm sure you're going to tell us even more injuries that you got. And yeah. and, and then you have it in you to slap this dude. That He must have been like, you just slapped me? You? Yeah. <laughs> we snapped him out of it, to be honest with you. He, he like came back, and he's like, I'm like, give me a headset. So he gives me a headset. I'm listening to all the chaos going on in the radio. Um, and at that point, the medic jumps in and he starts, you know, working on me. He's treating me for my injuries and whatnot. And uh, as best as he can on the vehicle. Right. Um, so I'm sitting there and I, I literally looked at him and I was like, man, I'm thirsty. Give me some water. Give me some water. He's like, I can't give you any water. Like you're pretty burned up. He's like, I don't want to cost anything. Hold on. And I'm like, no, dude, give me some fucking water right now. What are you not supposed to give people water if they're burned? I'm not sure. I think uh, I think he thought I was going to pour it on my skin and make the blisters a lot worse than than it would. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but I uh, I finally grabbed the bottle off of him. I take a sip and I just was like, man, I love water, and <laughs> it was just so refreshing. And then I did the biggest mistake I've ever could have done. I poured the water over my head. And all the chemicals from the uh, from the IED, from the fire extinguisher, all the stuff on the ground, it all rolled into my eyes, and I went blind for a minute. Like I couldn't see. And at this point, um, I hear it with the radios like, "We gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta push forward." And I'm like, "Cool, we're getting out of here." You know, I'll get seen <clears throat> by the medics and the fob. And I remember asking the driver, "I was like, hey, what? Um, where are we at?" in the uh in the convoy and he goes we're first vehicle and i'm like uh shit because you're still in combat at this point like not oh yeah they're not all dead like they're still trying to take you guys out yeah pretty much at this point like the helicopters had established a little bit of break where we were able to push out and and get back to the fob and then we have what's called a qrf which is a quick reaction force those guys were activated and they came out to the area so like it wasn't like we just left there was a group in the area looking for these guys as we were pushing out and so we were pushing out and like i mentioned earlier i've been there 11 months so i knew the area like the back of my hand man like i really did and um so i told the driver i was like you know where you're going he goes i have no idea and i'm like oh shit here we go so i'm like all right step on it i'm like um in about a quarter mile you're gonna see uh you're going to see a house in the corner. This is house right in the corner. And he goes, I see it. I see it. I'm going to take that left. So he takes that left. And then I'm like, on your right-hand side coming up, you're going to see a house. And for some reason, these people had a bell. I don't know why, but like a bell from a church in their front yard. And so I've always remember that. I'm like, you know, you take that right there and you can see our house from there. <clears throat> so I'm like, when you see the house with the bell on it, take that right. And he goes, I see it. I see it. I was like, take that right. So he takes it, and as he starts punching it, I'm like, just, I was like, pedal to the metal, man. I was like, you're going to see the fob. Let me know when it's coming up. And he goes, I see it, I see it, I see it. So I get on the mic, and I'm like, hey, this is, uh, you know, Blue Charlie Golf. Um, We're outside. Open the doors. Open the doors. They open the doors. We come rolling in like, you know, hell out of Batman, like just 
freaking flying in. Um, they close the gates. You know, we hear the other guys outside fighting. And as we pull in, um, I remember one of the guys opened the door to my Humvee and I knew that there was four of us that were injured and we only had three medics. So as he opened it, I closed the door and then he opens it again. He goes, come on, man. And I'm like, no, get the guys behind me. They're worse than I am. I'm like, go get them. Um, I'll be fine. And we were, we were attached to a special forces unit right next door to us. So their medic came over and he's like, I'm here. I'm here. I can help you. So as they're doing that, um, uh, my buddy Johnson comes to grab me and I'm like, just be careful. I think my legs are broken. And then he's like, okay, okay. As he grabs me by my arms, they were so burned up that like my skin came off as he grabbed me, like just peeled off. And he's looking at me like, dude, what the hell? And I was just like, I, I was like, I, I was in shock. Like I didn't know what to say or do. So they finally get me out of the vehicle into the aid station and I'm, I'm laying there and I see, you know, compost go in and I, I'm trying to grab his hand and I tell him like, it's all good, bro. Like we're good. We're, we're inside. And, um, you know, then I see Catterton and then I see Fleming roll in and I was like, okay, we're, we're all in here. And at that point it was like, I knew that they were okay. So I, I calmed down. I was like, all right, we're good. And, that's when I started experiencing pain. That's when every single bit of pain came. And it was probably, man, it's the, the most excruciating pain I've ever uh, had in my life. Um, it, it all came at once, you know, I was like, and I'm, I'm there in the, in the bed shaking and, you know, the whole, everything is, I feel every single bit of my body in pain. And I remember uh, our medic was like, dude, I'm, was like, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm like, all right, cool. And I remember saying <laughs> the most selfish thing in the world. I was like, give me some, uh, give me some, um, man, I forget the name of this medication. Uh, it's like, like a painkiller. That's super morphine. Hard. Yeah. I was like, give Demo, me some, something yeah, like give me some morphine. And he's like, uh, he's like, I can't give it to you right now. Hold on. Let, let us get you, uh, uh, you know, under control make sure everything's okay. Cause it's gonna, you know, push your heart rate up. And I'm like, no, no, give it to me now. So he gives it to me, and I don't remember telling him this because he reminded me of this in the hospital. But he said that I grabbed him and I said, "And if I die, it's up to you. It's it's your fault." <laughs> I was like, "Dang it, man!" I was like, "I'm sorry," and he's like, "Nah, don't worry about it." He's like, "I'm just glad you lived." And you know, I didn't have that in my head. I was like, "Oh man, I'm so sorry." <laughs> so they 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 do that, and then um, the uh, the evacuation helicopters came in to grab us to take us to the green zone. The green zone was this huge uh, installation that we had in Iraq where we had hospitals, you know, it was, it was like a big city um, within Iraq. So we get flown there and, you know, as soon as we land, like the medics and the doctors were all ready for us. So we land and um, I remember looking at the guys and telling them, all right, boys, I'll see y'all uh, at home. We're going home. I love you. And that was the last time that happened uh, or though that I saw compost, um, we uh we got injured May 14, 2007. May 16, we were rolling through the doors in San Antonio, Brook Army Medical Center um, to get taken care of. And as a result of that, I sustained 75% burns to the body, third and fourth degree burns, had a partial foot amputation um, where a grenade actually went off in the vehicle and hit my leg. 
Uh, and then we did limb salvage on that for about, I want to say like nine years. And then I ended up amputating below the knee. Um, and those were my injuries. And unfortunately, Campos ended up dying uh, two weeks after the IED. They tried everything. Um, and he was, you know, they, they had to amputate his legs. They amputated his arms, but his burns were so severe in his, in his stomach and everywhere else that uh, infection finally got him. And uh, he ended up dying June 1st. Um, so then after that, you know, and then, and then Fleming as well, Fleming, uh, severely burned. Uh, I think he was about 78% burns, third and fourth degree as well. And Catterton suffered about 30% burns, um, on his body. And, you know, then all three of us started our, our journey in San Antonio to recovery. Wow. Just thank you for your service. <laughs> so. um, a couple of things just stick out to me really in that story is when the ID went off and it gets launched up in the air and, you know, it's on fire, you know, your first thoughts weren't really even about yourself. You're, you're focused on, on all your, your teammates, you know, uh, it just, it's just amazing. It was the last thing, the last thing on your mind was yourself. And I wonder if it's almost like a defense mechanism where, you don't want to think about yourself because it's such a terrible traumatic situation that your, your mind maybe can't handle it. Um, or I don't know what the reasons are, but that's unbelievable. And for you to decide while you're, you have third and, uh, th uh, third and fourth degree burns yeah, and your legs are both broken and all sorts of issues going on. You freaking get back up on the gun and start shooting back at these dudes like you mother <laughs> efforts. Like the fact that you did that is the most gangster move of all time that I've ever heard. I, I don't think I've seen it in a movie, anything that even parallels that. It's it is. Just, that is unbelievable. That that story, the visualization of it all, it just boggles my mind. And then you, and then you get out eventually and you, then you have your M4 and you're shooting rounds off. Yeah. I'm like, what the how the hell did you still have that fight in you when you your life is aligned? You could be gone at any given moment at this point. That's you know? exactly it. You know, you got to give them hell till they come and get you. I mean, <laughs> and it, it's just it, it's it's a man. It, it's a uh, it's second nature, right? All that we've done, all that training, we've done uh, everything that leads up to that, right? And then at the end of the day, it's it's either two things you can shut down or you can push forward. And I think we all have this in us that it's a, it's a fighting uh, spirit to stay alive. You know what I mean? Like we, every single person probably listening to this has it in them. It's, it's there. You just got to reach deep, deep down and pull it out. And then I, I was just placed in a situation where I either died or I made it out alive. And it was really up to me and training kicked in and Again, I was I wanted to make sure that that, the, that my guys were okay, uh, and I'm pretty sure they were saying the same thing to each other. It was, you know, I want to make sure that he's okay, um, and then that's just what it is, man. And that's where we're we're such a big family, and um, you know, I, these guys are my blood, but I consider them my family. They're they they'll do anything for them. It's amazing, um, and then you become a human GPS while you're blind. <laughs> like while you're in shock and your adrenaline's going and you got all these injuries, you know, and you, I just, I just can't even imagine that is unbelievable. Um, 
let's let's talk about the recovery process and the, and the surgeries. I mean, I've had 24 surgeries and it's hard for people to even understand what that was like. And, and people are blown away by that. And I, I think I've seen on your Instagram, you had 99 surgeries. I don't know if you've had more since, but like, I don't know how to relate to that. I have no <laughs> idea what the hell that's like. Yeah, we're uh, at 103. 103. Yeah, Holy yeah, yeah. smokes. Congratulations, bro. You're, you. crushing, you're crushing everybody <laughs> at this point. <laughs> No, no, oh surprisingly, I got friends that have had way more than I had. So, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That yeah is, that's that. something I think about, too. It's like, how do you find inspiration? Like, I, I talk to you and I find inspiration. Like, I, you know, my leg is, you know, I still have plenty of issues. I got a long road ahead. I have goals I want to accomplish. And um, I have these obstacles. And then I look at you and I'm like, bro, I'm going to run through a freaking wall. There's nothing <laughs> stopping me, you know? Um but yeah, so is there people that you look to as your inspiration that With, probably have it doubt. worse than you or? Without a doubt. I, I think uh, there's always someone that has it worse than we do. And and that was the case when I was at the hospital, right? I mean, I saw guys that were triple amputees. There were, you know, quadruple amputees, guys that were burned a lot worse than I was. And, and one of them being my buddy, Michael Schlitz, he was burned 98% of his body. You couldn't recognize this guy. His face was burned. Arms were both gone, you know, and he's the only thing that didn't get burned was the bottom of his feet. And, and then you look at a guy like that and he walks into, to this big room that we had where we all did our therapy in the burn unit. And uh, he walks in, you know, saying the dumbest jokes and laughing and, and, and being like just the spirit of the room. And you're like, how can I sit here and be selfish and feel bad about myself and not keep pushing forward for those guys that didn't make it out, right? You want to live your life to honor them. And so I grabbed a lot of motivation out of that. And I was like, you know, like, no, I'm not going to let this conquer me. There's, these injuries aren't going to conquer me. I'm going to conquer them. And that was essentially what it was. And I was lucky and blessed enough that my family dropped everything when I got injured and then moved to San Antonio to take care of me. So it was a big support system. I had it right off the get-go. They were like, you're not going to give up. You're not quitting. We're going to get through this. Let's push forward, man. And, and being, you know, Mexican, it, there's like that sense of pride in us. We're like, I got this. And that I felt every bit of it from my mom and dad and my siblings and, you know, and, and just everything everybody around us, man, was amazing. So you, you feed off of that, you get the positivity. And I think everybody wants <clears throat> that comeback, the comeback story, right? you want to be able to look back one day and be like, yeah, that see that, that was me. And here I am today. And I'm, I'm standing here to tell you that anything's possible as, as cliche as that might sound, you know, it's, it's really, you, if you put your mind to it, you can literally accomplish anything. And I mean, anything. It really is crazy because it's like my life, any setback I've had, any, any crazy times that are, that were tough. It's like, you know, do you sit there and feel bad for yourself? There really, there really isn't any time for that because oh, you look at someone who, who has it worse. It's like, who the hell are you to feel bad for yourself? Yeah. You know, just get up and do the best you possibly can. Um, so this was 2007. This injury happened. We're in yeah. 2021. Can you just give me it? Like, I know you're not going to be able to give me every single year and, and what happened, but like, obviously you've had 104 surgeries. Just kind of give me like, like a quick idea of what's been going on in your life. Some of the ups and downs and, and things that you, I, I know you've, I know you've accomplished some big things and 
Yeah. Um, so after that, you know, I kind of hung around, didn't really do much, didn't, didn't have uh, anything going on. So I was trying to find my purpose and um, walked into a gym at a buddy's uh, down in Brownsville, Texas, the Hard Knocks. And um, it's a strength and conditioning gym. And I was getting a little bit, a little bit on the fat side. And I was like, man, I, I got to go do something, you know, like I'm not not attracting the ladies anymore. I got to get to the gym. <laughs> and uh, so I walk in this gym and they were deadlifting that day. And um, I'm like, all right, I'm going to give this a try. And I couldn't deadlift because of my hands. And I'm like, man, this is a, this ain't for me. And he's like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Let me get some straps. I'm like, okay. So he grabs some straps and it, it changed it, man. I was like, oh man, I can do this now. So I started with one plate right that, that day. And before I left, I had deadlifted four or five. And he's like, um, I was like, I can go heavier. And he goes, no, what? I'm like, it felt light. And he's like, I have guys that I've been training for about two years and can deadlift that. Like, what? I'm like, I don't know. Came in the following week and deadlifted 500. (laughs) And they were like, dude, you got to take this seriously and get after it. I'm like, cool. So after like a year or two of training, um, I went to the Paralympics and uh, broke a couple of war records and deadlifted and bench um, and ended the lifting uh, at that competition. I believe it was 685. And I think I benched 445. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then I ended up, uh, I had set a goal. I wanted to deadlift 700 pounds. It was my goal. Um, I ended up deadlifting 705 and bench 500. And oh, yeah, man. Yeah. So after that, I called it a day. I was like, all right, cool. I'm done. Like, I got the uh, I got the records. I'm good with that. Um, and with that came uh, motivational speaking. So I started doing that for a living. Um, so that's uh, kind of where it's, it's, it's where I'm at today. It's taking me all over the place and um, be able to talk to people and share my story. And, and ultimately, man, like every time I tell my story, I make sure I always give credits to the guys and that their names are mentioned so that way their their names are forever remembered. You know mm. what I mean? Everybody that hears it, I hope whoever's listening to this takes the Harkies and the Compos and the McGinnises and they, they, they grab those names and they remember them. And no, no matter where they go, they see something that brings up their memory. That's to me, that's, that's a win. Um, so I've been doing that. Um, Recently got married last year, uh, which to my beautiful bride, and she's amazing. Um, Congrats, man! Thank you, thank so you. So you found you finally you got good looking enough. You got yeah. you got. I don't know about good looking look. enough. now. Girls no. like you. Yeah, girls. I don't know. Like. I don't know about good looking. I think it's yeah. more like personality. I'm like I try to be a funny guy, so I think that's. <laughs> <the worst. laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've been been focused on that. Um, just trying to get back to my community. Um, I know. My service is done to uh, to this country, but not to my community. So I, I want to always try to give back as much as I can, try to inspire uh, young kids coming up and, you know, just just continue to do good things, man. I think we're, we all get wrapped up in the negative stuff that goes on and all the, all the negative stuff in the media and, and, and the division that's going on in our country. I, I try to put that aside as much as is in our faces. I, I try to not really... Give it the time of day. I want to make sure that, you know, we keep it positive. We keep it pushing and just learn and love one another. And, and just, man, it, it doesn't take much to be a good human being, to be honest with you. And and that's kind of what uh, what I like to do now is just inspire people and make sure that they, you know, they love themselves before they can love someone else type thing. 
I love it. Uh, I just got to ask. So, I mean, you go to the gym. How many years after um, in 2007, since your injury, uh, did you actually walk into the gym and start powerlifting? 2010. So three years later. Three years I mean, later. obviously, those three years were probably super tough. How many How many surgeries did you have at that point? Um, so I had 45 surgeries right off the bat before I even was awake. Um, and most of them were, um, you know, there were, I had, what are those things called? You, you ever seen the, uh, uh, like the, the frames that they put on you with the rods and stuff like that? Yes. Like the yeah, big, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I had yeah. two of those on both my legs, um, and due to burns and stuff, they constantly got infected. So they had to go in there and clean it up and, um, do all sorts of stuff, uh, had a bunch of surgeries for skin grafts to make sure that they took all that. So I had 45 surgeries right off the bat without even realizing it. I wasn't even awake. I was in induced coma for three months. <clears throat> um, so yeah, I mean, I had all those surgeries and then by 2010, I think I had about, uh, probably close to 60 surgeries total. Um, and then after that, you know, every, Every year, I probably had three or four or five surgeries. And, and it, what is it? Just like, I don't know where you, like, you start having pain in your finger or your, your leg? Or... Yeah, so we did a lot of corrections to the fingers. We did a lot of surgeries for, um, like, my hands to try to get them more capable to where they're at today. Um, I get scar bands. Like, um, some of the parts where I got really burned, these, these scar bands get really thick. Um, like I had one about two years ago and before that my body was kind of pulling me to the right because that scar band was so thick and then they did what is called a, a Z plaster or something like that where they kind of cut in a Z and it alleviates and it lets it go so like now I can move everywhere and I'm more flexible and whatnot so um, stuff like that um, where they'll come in and do that or since my uh uh, like my backside was pretty badly burned um, and my butt, I really don't have that much padding like we usually do. So if I'm sitting for so long, I'll get sores on my butt and I start bleeding. If I'm standing too long, you know, my nub hurts. So it's just a constant fight. But what, what hurts when you stand? The nub, like, or my oh. legs or whatever. Um, but I'm talking about like a couple hours, you know, four or five yeah. hours standing yeah. up, then it takes a toll. Um, so it's, it's, Things like that, where it's more cosmetic surgeries than anything that we'll come in and do. Um, like my nose got burned off, and you know they will. What they do, like a skin graft, they do things like that. Like my ears are, you know, they're not they're not like y'all's fighting ears, but you know they're missing a little bit of. <laughs> you can tell you're a fighter. I, I can tell you're a fighter <laughs> with those ears. You're not messing with. No one's messing with you. Check out those um, ears. Um, yeah, so it was, just, it was just cosmetic work to get me where I'm at today. Um, a lot of these surgeries, um, honestly, they're, they're, they're life-saving, man. There's little things that um, that I took for granted before that I don't now. You know what I mean? Like waking up and tying my shoelaces. Like uh, I remember the first time I tied my shoelaces, it was a year after I'd been wounded. And I did it on my own. And I literally sat back and I started crying. I was like, yeah, here we go. Like the road to freedom. Like. I'm going to be on my own here soon. And, you know, it took about three years to me finally getting there. And then, you know, me finally like telling my mom, like, Hey, it's okay. Like you can go back home. Like I got this and, uh, you know, lived on my own. And there was always, I mean, there's always obstacles, right? You, you gotta just overcome them. Like I couldn't open a jar or I couldn't open this or I couldn't do things. And then like, I'm like, yes, I can. And, um, just quickly, um, 
overcame those obstacles, man. I adapted and overcame. It was one of the, uh, the things that I needed to be on my own so that I knew that I could take care of my own, you know? And, um, and then from there on, man, it was pretty much left everything else in the dust and became that, that story that I look back at now and be like, look, this is where I was at. And this is my comeback story. And here's where I'm at today. Can we just talk? I, I know. I don't know. Are you good on time? Are you good yeah. on time? Okay. I appreciate it. I could talk to you forever. Um, we have to do a second podcast. Um, but what ended up happening with the leg? Because I know it wasn't fully amputated. And obviously my leg has issues and they were talking about possibly, I mean, there's chances of amputation if the bone doesn't take properly and all that. Just curious on like what that process was like uh, for you. Yeah. So with mine, it was, it was a little different, right? So when I got amputated, they found traces of um, the explosives, all the chemicals and everything in it. And one of my toes had actually developed cancer from all that stuff. So they came in and nipped it. And at that point, I only had four toes. Um, but my toes were so severely burned that every time I, that I try to walk on them, it was like walking on my bone and it just, it was excruciating pain. So what we ended up doing is we did a partial amputation. It's kind of like a, uh, like a diabetes amputation where they did just do half of it. Mm -hmm. um, so we cut that off and I was fine with it. Like I was okay. I did lift it. I power lifted it and it like did everything, played sports, everything. Um, till one day, man, I was, you know, I was already living here in the uh, central area and I was, in Austin, and a buddy of mine uh, has started this movement of we're doing 22 miles with 22 pounds in your rucksack for the 22 veterans that are killing themselves every day. So it was kind of to bring awareness. And I was like, I'm 100% in, man. I want to do this. So I was like, let's go. And it's just service members from all over the area. And so, you know, you, you, it's Wait, 22 like 22 miles for how long? What? Uh, 22 miles with 22 pounds on a rucksack. Oh geez. <laughs> yeah. So I uh I at, at this it. point, how much of a leg do you have? You just you didn't have you didn't have like a half a foot or something? Half a foot, yeah. Oh so gosh. I do that, I do that march and I uh uh the bottom of my leg split open where the scar was at and it wasn't healing and it wasn't healing. And my wife, girlfriend at the time was like, You need to go to the doctor and get that checked out. And I'm like, No, you don't understand, like with my burns, uh you know, any wound takes forever to heal. Like I know my body and she's like, yeah, I don't think you, you really do. And I'm like, I got this. And eventually like six weeks went by and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go get it checked out. So I go and the doctor's like, yeah, we're going to have to do surgery on it just to close it back up. Um, how about you come back on Wednesday? This is on a Monday. And I'm like, let's do it. So go back in, they go in there and they start cleaning. And then the surgery ends up taking longer than what it's supposed to take. Well, the doctor got a wild hair up his ass and he's like, I'm going to take a culture out of his leg and, and see what's going on. And they found traces of um, cancer. And it wasn't a, a cancer spreading. It was a local cancer. So he was able to wrap me up and said, all right, we're going to have to have you come back next week so that we can clean it all out, do cultures when you're you know, asleep and make sure that we get it all. So they go in there, they take it all, man. Like, they did an amazing job. Well, I had a hole in the bottom of my foot at this point. I mean, it, it was like really deep. And they, they, you know, patched me up and they're like, all right, a week from now, you know, you should be fine to walk on it, la, la, la. So I gave it about a week and a half. I'm like, I'm going to let this heal. And as soon as I get up to walk, man, everything just popped in and reopened. And I was like, dang oh. it. There wasn't any meat for this to 
around it for it to heal properly. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't anything. And then that was, that was, that was really, really excruciating pain. I'm like, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. And one night I just made up my mind. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to cut it off. Like, let's just cut it off. And so I talked to my wife and I was like, look, honey, I'm, I'm going to, I want to do this. And she's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, I think it's going to give me a better quality of life. And she said, okay, well, let's go talk to the doctors. So we walk in and my doctor comes in and then here comes the ortho uh, doctor, which I've known for a while. And before they said anything, I was like, can you cut this off already, please? And they're like, well, that was their next option. Like we were about to tell you that, but we're glad we're on the same page. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I'm like, he was all sweet. nervous coming in, worried about telling you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause they yeah. knew that like I was a power lifter. They knew yeah. that, you know, I did all that stuff and they yeah. were kind of concerned. And I'm like, no, let's go. Like, let's go. Let's cut this damn thing off. And uh, we did. We ended up, uh, that was on a Thursday, I believe, is when I went there. And I was like, let's cut it tomorrow. And the doctor's like, how about this? How about you go home, enjoy your weekend with your family, come back on Monday, and then we'll do the amputation. I'm like, cool. And the the weekend couldn't have couldn't go fast enough man like i was like looking at the clock every single day like come on the night before i couldn't sleep finally, <laughs> you're hysterical you get on christmas morning <laughs> can't wait yeah. to get my leg amputated this is Yo, the best thing yeah because i mean you know i knew i knew it was going to alleviate a lot of pain so yeah you know we we did and we walk in there on a monday and uh they cut it off and then i was sent home on a friday and then the, the recovery started this was early august or no, sorry late august like the 30th of august i believe is when it was mm -hmm. and then so after that happens you know they wait for you to heal and then the prosthetic fitting starts and so i was i took this very serious man i i went on on like this paleo keto diet to where like i cut everything out all no no processed stuff nothing like and i'm a big hunter so we had a lot of game meat in the house and stuff like that so like I ate very, very clean and it was crazy. It helped my recovery. Like uh, they, they even did a study with it. They were like, you did what? I'm like, yeah, I did all these things. They're like, you're healing faster than we ever seen. And I'm like, cool. Pass this information on to the guy so they know. Um, so they did a whole study on it. And I was scheduled to get on a prosthetic December 14th. I was in a prosthetic November 20th walking. Wow. Yeah. What's this diet? I'm I'm doing a different type of diet right now. I'm curious. It was paleo. It was like a paleo keto diet. So like, is it you know, more protein? Like so you had all your venison. Yeah, and pretty much like meat. more protein, all that stuff. Like no, like uh, no veggies. Sometimes, but yeah. I kind of like the sugar, dairy. You know, like um, like the 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 stuff that's that's got all that gluten and everything in it. Like yeah. I cut a lot of stuff off. So I ate very clean. Um. So it helped me out a lot. And yeah, so then I was in a prosthetic uh, like two, three months later and wow. started walking around. And then uh, a buddy of mine has this this uh, event down in uh, Columbia, South Carolina called Summer Strong. They own uh, Sornex equipment and they have this uh, Summer Strong where they bring people from all over the country, like strength and conditioning coaches, NFL players, everybody. And one of the biggest things is a deadlifting party, man, in front of everybody. And like, if you want to deadlift, you get on the platform. And if you can't get the heavyweight, then get off. If you can't hang with the big boys, get off. And it was six months into my uh, my injury. And I said, you know what? I'm ready. Let's go. 
and got on that platform man, and I ended up lifting. I think it was like six oh five or something like that. Like, bro, you an animal. <laughs> so like that, that pumped me up, man. I put that weight down. And I was like, let's go. And um, the, it, I think I think my recovery was fast because I was okay with it. Like I made the decision myself. Uh, I didn't come home and wake up without my leg. You know what I mean? Like I walked into this saying, "Okay, let's do it." Like, how, I think how, that made a world. Of how was it. how was that recovery? You know, amputating your leg as compared to everything else that you dealt with, was it an easier pain? It was easier. It was easier, but it was hard to get used to. Because um, <laughs> one night I got up to go to the bathroom like at three, four in the morning. I'm like, man, I gotta go pee. I've been drinking a lot of water, and so I get up, and my crutches are next to the bed, right? And 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 my wife leaves me like um on the side closer to the bathroom. So I get up and I totally forget that my legs amputated and I go to take a step and I'm oh, like, no. Oh, and I tip over and I just fall. And I'm like, you know what? I was so tired. I was like, screw this. I fell asleep on the, on the, on the ground, on the carpet. I'm like passed out. And I guess my wife was reaching over to see if she could feel me. Cause she didn't feel me coming back to bed. So she pops up and it's like six in the morning. And she's like, what are you doing on the ground? I was like, what? She's like, what are you sleeping on the ground for? I was like, oh, I forgot I'm missing a leg and uh, I fell and now I'm sleeping down here. And she's like, get up in bed. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> so it was it was easy, but there was the, the the bumps like that. I had to learn how to drive with with my left leg, you know, which is kind of awkward um, until I got my prosthetic. And now I drive with my prosthetic and, you know, that's I gas and brake. I'm fine with it now. But it wasn't as hard, to be honest with you, because I was ready for it. I knew what I was getting into. And um, it was kind of my choice to do this. And um, I think that, that that made a world of difference. I, I knew yeah. I knew what I needed to do. And it was like, you know, it was like a planned thing. The doctor knew what he was doing. It's They've probably done that a million times. You oh, yeah. know, and I'm yeah. sure I'm sure it's a little bit more. And the pain cut. was gone. The pain was gone, which was the biggest thing for me. It was I, I know I'm no longer in pain with this partial foot, like it, the pain's gone. Yeah. Do I have a little bit of pain on my nub? Yeah. But it wasn't nearly a fraction of what I was experiencing before. Like, yeah, I, I hardly ever break down or anything. I mean, that, 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 uh, thing had me in tears some days where I was just like, yeah. I can't take it. And, you know, my wife was like, well, here's the medication you need to take painkillers. They weren't helping. So yeah. when that pain was gone, it was just like, man, it was an amazing feeling. Like I'm like, all right, I'm back to life. Like, here we go. Yeah. Um, we're just going to keep talking forever. Uh, Troy's going <laughs> to kill me. But um, like, uh, how are your hands now? Because I've had, I've had three hand surgeries and hand surgeries to me were pretty brutal. I had some tough ones. So I'm just curious are your hands, like, is that extremely painful or not? Um, no, <clears throat> they're not anymore. I mean, like we, so this hand, we shaped it up like that. So I'm able to grab things with it. Like <laughs> you got um, made, made a hook. Oh yeah. And then it's this amazing. hand, if you can see the finger there, we shaped it up to where when I'm shooting, I can pull the trigger. Um, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's how I hunt. Is that all? Like I got hit some hip bone. I got two of my hip bones in my hand. Did you, did you use like different parts of your body to. Put they did. Yeah. They grab a bunch of stuff, some cadaver stuff as well. Um, gotcha. But my tendons were so badly burned that they didn't take. So that's they have to fuse them. That's why they're 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 a one area. Like I can't bend them that well. But we were able to bend it enough to where I can use this one to pull the trigger or do different things or whatever. Um, so I bow hunt and rifle hunt now with it. So 
pretty cool. I know. I, know. I want to come. I got to come hunt with you one day. I still haven't hunted. I got, I got plenty of guns and everything, but I don't <laughs> shoot them enough, and I and I and I haven't hunted yet. So I need to. I need we'll to come on down to Texas, man. We'll take care of you. Um. All right. So just because I, I honestly could go on forever. Two more things. Out of out of your whole time of recovery, I'm sure you had some dark moments, some really tough times. Um, can you just go through maybe a, a moment or two like that, and then how you were able to get through it, just to kind of help inspire people who are kind of going through tough times? <clears throat> yeah, man. Um, one of the biggest things for me was realizing that I couldn't take care of myself. You know, I had my mother, uh, and I'm here. I am a 21 year old, right? Like have the world on my feet. Like I was like, I, I can do anything like to being injured and not being able to do anything. Um, and having your mom wipe your ass and bathe you and everything. And it, it's kind of, to me, it was, it was rock bottom. It was, man, I'm having my parents take care of me. And I don't think it should be that way. I think I should be taking care of them, you know? Um, so that was, that was the hardest pill to swallow was that I couldn't do things for myself. And at night, you know, when you're laying there and everything's turned off and it's just you and your thoughts, I felt like I was a burden to them. I felt like, like I was inconveniencing them. Like, I felt like I was taking years out of their lives because they're here taking care of me, uh, because of a decision that I made, you know? And so that was that was probably the hardest things to do. And not only that, you know, you start dealing with survivor's guilt um, and you start thinking of like compos, like, which, you know, it, to me, it was a big thing because, you know, he was married, he had a kid. Um, I didn't have any of those things. I was a 21 year old, like, you know, so survivor's guilt was probably the biggest one. Cause I was like, I would do anything to trade places with him so that he can enjoy his family. Um, and man, it's just, uh, family reinforcement uh my niece uh Haley which is she's my little angel man she was uh she was in her mother's stomach when I got injured and she was born three months after uh my injury and her mom used to come into the room all the time and put her hand on her stomach and be like you need to survive you need to survive so you can meet your niece your niece wants to meet you and they said that I used to move a lot like when she was saying that and I was out and when the time came and I was in the hospital, I had to learn how to walk. Cause they were like, you got to learn how to walk and get out of the ICU so that you can carry your niece. And, and that really pushed me, man. Like I busted my ass every single day at PT, everything. And then the day that I was able to walk out of my room into the uh, visiting area, because they didn't want to bring her to the back because, you know, there was a bunch of us in that, in that building. And, the, the the bacteria and stuff wasn't going to be good for her. Um, so when I was able to walk out of there and sit in, in the waiting area and just holding my hands was like such a big accomplishment. And then I was like, uh-uh, no, I got this. Like, I'm going to fight for this little girl and I'm going to be there for graduation. I'm going to be there for her wedding. Uh, I'm going to, I want to be there for all the moments in her life. And that's ultimately what pushed me, man. And it was, it was, her single-handedly saving my life. Wow. Um, well, I think we'll, we're going to end it with that, man. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking to me. We got to do this again another time. I got, me, I got so much more I want to talk to you about. Yeah, man, let me know. Um, but man, just your story is so, so powerful and inspiring. And um, I'm so excited to, you know, put it out there. 
uh, on on our outlets just to you know help inspire as many people as possible. So I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. And you know, good luck with everything that you're doing. Uh, kill as many deer as you possibly can. Get, that, get those <laughs> well, guns. We only we do the limit. <laughs> oh, there's a limit within the limit. Yeah, yeah, yeah within the limit. <laughs> yeah, and you got to eat it all. I got to. Oh, yeah. we, we're gonna get together one of these days for sure. Let's do it. Um, all right, man. Well, I really appreciate you for coming on, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Man, that is the most insane story I've ever heard. This guy, Omar Crispy Avila, is the man. He is somebody that you would see in a movie, but he's he's in real life. I mean, I, I can't even believe what this guy did. He was on fire and still shooting back at the enemies. Both of his legs are completely broken. He's slapping people in the face. He, he became a blind GPS to get back home you know, under crazy pressure and in his body being covered in 75% of third and fourth degree burns. He is a complete savage. I am so inspired right now. Anything that's going on with my leg, I could tell you I'm not worried about it at all. I'm coming back. There's no stopping me now. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it and are super inspired like I was. Love this guy. Please give him a follow. You can follow him on Instagram and YouTube at crispy11b. I also just want to say thank you so much for all the support and all the great feedback I got from my first episode with Anderson Silva. Um, it's really been it's really been nice, and I, I just appreciate everything that you guys have been saying. and I, And thank you for listening. And uh, I really can't wait to have uh, more guests on in the future that help inspire uh, as many people as possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please follow along with us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. For those of you who are asking, the show will appear on Apple Podcasts very soon. But until then, you can also watch the full interviews and shorter clips over on my YouTube channel, Chris Weidman. I'll be back next week with another great guest. But until then, I'm Chris Weidman, and this is Won't Back Down. Thanks for listening.